0: and Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity, social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every so often, I interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined live by Amy McGrath, who ran for a Senate seat against Mitch McConnell, as well as former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villarigosa. This episode continues our conversation about why running for public office is important, but it's a little different. It's a recording of a live conversation I had with Amy McGrath, who ran for both the U.S. House of Representatives and then for the Senate against Mitch McConnell. This episode also contains an introduction from former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaragosa. As you'll learn Amy is a trailblazer. She was the first woman to fly a combat mission for the Marine Corps and the first to pilot the F-18 fighter jet on a combat mission. In our conversation, Amy and I touch on a variety of issues, but most importantly, the role of women as political leaders. Amy also shares the challenges and advantages of serving in the armed forces and then running for high political office during the pandemic. Unfair Nation is recorded at The Difference Engine, a venture studio housed at Arizona State University that builds products communities can use to reduce inequality. This conversation was part of a regular speaker series that The Engine holds called Engineering Change. You can check out more about our work by visiting thedifferenceengine.asu.edu. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here at uh, ASU. Uh, excited uh, to host uh, Amy McGrath, uh, someone I followed for a long time, and I get to share a little bit about her. She graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and was commissioned as a Marine Corps officer in 1997. She earned her wings of God, gold rather, of God, because she was in the air. And I was thinking of God as as an FA 18 weapons systems officer and completed two combat deployments, flying 89 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2002, as a weapons systems officer, Amy became the first woman in the Marine Corps to fly a combat mission in the FA 18. How about that? Come on, it's a great American. She was an air combat tactics uh Instructor as well as a graduate of the Marine Corps Division Tactics Course. In 2004, she transitioned to become an FA 18 pilot and completed a second operational tour, deploying to Japan and operating in the Pacific. She completed her third combat deployment in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, in 2010. After operational flying tours, Amy served as a congressional fellow advising a senior member of the U.S. House of Representatives Armed Services Committee on Defense and Foreign Policy. Subsequently, she served in the Pentagon as the Marine Corps liaison to the State Department and other federal agencies. After earning a postgraduate degree in global security from John Hopkins, her final active duty assignment was as a senior instructor in the Political Science Department at the U.S. Naval Academy before retiring at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and moving back to Kentucky to raise her family. In 2018, that's when I first heard of Amy. And in 2020, she ran U.S. House and Senate races in Kentucky. And most, more recently, she started Honor Bound um, Inc., a 501 C4 nonpartisan organization committed to leadership de- development for women with a service background and encouraging those uh, women to run for elected office. She has a book entitled *Honor Bound: An American Story of Dreams and Service* coming out later this summer, published by Knopf. It's a memoir on her time in the military, what propelled her to run for office, and the hard lessons in leadership, sacrifice, and patriotism she learned along the way. It's my great honor, uh, having watched her campaign for Senate and a campaign I think that made us all so proud. uh, To Introduce Amy McGrath. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. First,
0: I would like to thank uh, Mayor Viragosa for that wonderful introduction. You um, wrote. <laughs> uh, he is an exceptionally busy individual. He's doing really, really important work for our state with the governor, um, in addition to all of the work he's done for our city and for all of us. Uh, that we continue to benefit from on on a daily basis and um, he has been a fantastic ally to the university to Arizona State University here in LA and in particular to the Difference Engine uh, and something I am the fact that he's here today uh, to make time for this um, if we could give him a round of applause that's <clears> fantastic <throat> thank you Uh, Really quick, those of you that have not attended Engineering Change, most of our Engineering Change series are remote. They are put on by the Difference Engine, which is our center where we build products that communities can use to reduce inequality. A lot of this work is possible through the generous contributions of our executive board. Two members of our executive board are here today. They're sitting in the back. I'll introduce you to them if you want to afterwards. But Phil right there from Sedexo, who uh, supports our work, and Rick from Canon, are two of our many board members that support this work and make all of this possible. Um, We have three products primarily that we're building. We're building a Women's Power and Influence Index, which tracks the power of women at the workplace. We're quantifying equity. We're starting with women. Biojet was the first company we released on this index last week. So keep keep your eye out for other companies. We're working to build a brand new police department in an L.A. community from scratch, working alongside the community. We just got a small grant on that, which we're really happy about. And then we're working to launch a new fellowship uh, scholarship model in Oakland, California, where the grantee of the scholarship becomes the grantor for low-income young people um, and those from impacted communities. So it's a little bit about the Difference Engine, but without further ado, we'll get right into this. And the way engineering change works, it's really informal. We only have about 25, 30 folks here today. So I am just gonna launch into questions for Amy, okay? All right, so the first question kind of relates to a story in your book. On around, um, and it was when you you were uh, kind of detailed to Egypt, and you were on a uh, kind of a joint uh, deployment with the Egyptian Air Force. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that period, the Egyptian Air Force asked you to play a friendly game of soccer, and uh, they wanted you to wear more modest clothing. Mm-hmm. And I think you and your CEO kind of drew a hard line and said, you know. This is what we wear when we play football or soccer. Uh and that's what I'm going to stick with and I think you won the MVP at the end, end of the match. But I the the phrase that I remember you saying about that experience was it was no use getting bent out of shape. Right? That's that's what you talked about. So it was something that you that kind of bothered you but you kind of went past it to the broader objective. And I think this is a theme I've seen in your remarks in your book. Um this idea of you know, I'm not going to back down from gender uh, discrimination or inequality, but I'm also just going to push through in the system that I am in. The Marines is one of these systems. Politic- running for political office uh, is one of these systems. Some people would argue that in the last 15, 20 years, things have changed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that the attitude that women in particular, but also uh, folks from other backgrounds have, is that it's no longer sufficient or even preferable to try to change things from inside a system. You should just break the system mm. or rebuild the system. Um, and that to do so, to work that way, is to maybe be indecisive or not as aggressive as you know maybe one should be. So if, if somebody's approaching you from that perspective, how far do you think they, let's say they're a woman, how far do you think they should go to obtain equal treatment?
2: Well, that's a very good question. Um, my experience is that uh, it, it, it's kind of a balance. When I grew up in Kentucky, I wanted to be a fighter pilot since the age of like 10 years old. And this was the 1980s. And I remember, you know, w- when you were a kid in the 1980s, you didn't have the internet. So what did you do when you wanted to, to be something? You went to the library and you pulled out every single book, which I did, of, on fighter jets. And I realized very quickly, though, that there were no women doing this job. And so why was that? And as I pulled the string on it, you know, as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, I realized there's a federal law. So there were structural barriers. It wasn't just that women didn't want to do this or their cultural barriers, which there are and we'll talk about, but there were real structural barriers. There was a law that forbid women from flying fighter jets In the United States, and so that's how I learned. You know, well, how do you change a law? I'm going to go change this law, and I realized, well, I can't change the law, but elected members of Congress, elected officials, could change the law. So I, you know, started to be active and write letters to them. And um, I think that to get back to your question, I think it's it's a it's a balance between wanting to change the the structural systems that we have by, you know, as you say, breaking them, which doesn't always work, as opposed to the sort of long-term slog of, all right, the system is what it is. Let's work to change it. And how do we do that? How do we, you know, in my case, I wrote letters to members of Congress. I wrote letters to uh, newspapers. And I paid attention to politics because, you know, change had to happen in the, the people that we elected. And we had this amazing thing happen in the fall of 1992. I became a, a, uh, a senior in high school that year. This amazing thing that happened that year, an election. And we elected more women to Congress than ever before in history that year. We had a new president, a more forward-thinking president who was open to allowing women to do things in the military that had we had not been able to do before, and that was Bill Clinton. He did not, and his administration and Congress did not open all jobs to women that year, but they opened up many more, including combat aviation, combat ships. And it changed my life, and the structural barriers were were lifted. But that wasn't the only answer. You had to not only lift the structural barriers, and I think that's my point here, is it's not good enough just to have the laws change and the structural barriers change and these opportunities out there. You have to actually work toward change and you have to work toward cultural change too. And that requires you know, staying within the system uh, and, and working at it. And I hope that answers your question, but that's, that's my point of view. Uh,
0: that's all the answer that I need, really. <laughs> but I do have a follow-up, right? Yeah. Um, so something I hear from my students a lot to kind of pull the thread on the systems working within a system. And I say this from the perspective of somebody who worked in the national security and Homeland security establishment in a civil rights capacity, you know, very difficult to get work work done in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, And frequently criticized for being somebody on the inside or playing kind of an uncle Tom kind of role in that space. Right. People with my background were being incarcerated and here I am part of that organization. Right. So to people who, Some of my students have talked about, and if we're focused especially on women, but this applies to any demographic characteristic, is this idea of like, okay, so I'm working in the system, but the system that I'm working in is designed by and caters to the preferences of the majority, let's say men. So the Marines in particular is a system that has all of this momentum. And so... um, it arguments for creating a, a kind of a separate force, or there's arguments like that as well. And so, what do you what do you what do you think about that kind of uh, well, statement?
2: I think you have to work within the system, and you have to get you have to work within it to get to the leadership, and that's where you change. So, you know, we we have in the Marine Corps a fairly good percentage of women recruited to become officers. It's like ten percent. But by the time we get to the three, two, three, four-star generals, guess what? We're like 1%. And so we have to focus on, you know, and and this isn't just the Marine Corps, but it's all the military. We have to focus on, you know, uh, getting women to the higher ranks. And here's why that matters. It matters because you have to have women in these positions of power. You have to have that diversity. The talent is there. We're clearly capable. How do do we get that is another story. There are cultural barriers to getting there. But it's important because real change does not happen. It it happens from the grassroots, yes, but it happens when you have leaders who uh, push that change. And, you know, this is true in politics too. We will not reach uh, gender equity. We will not get to where we need to be unless we have more women in positions of power in our government. It's just a fact. No offense to the men, but you have to have women in those at the table. And how you get there is, you, in my opinion, you work within the system that we have. And when you get to those levels, you push for things like better quality childcare that will not only help you, know, you as an individual, if you're a woman, but will help millions of other women um, rise and get into positions of power. Because let's face it, women are still the, the gender that is, is primarily doing the unpaid work of you know, f- taking care of elderly and raising a family and raising in, in childcare and, and children. And so we have to look at that.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that specific topic about, thank you for transitioning, taking care of my transition, <laughs> uh, and talk about women running for office so, um, as a way to bring bring about kind of systems change, right, you ran for office twice uh once for a house seat, once for uh the Senate seat against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, mm-hmm. very brave and very you know especially when it comes to things like you know if you have a family and it's it's a hard decision to make to undertake and mm-hmm. a hard journey. you launched honor bound thereafter to talk- to do exactly what you're talking about, encouraging women to run for office, but I think. Many of us here would probably agree that the target that people are aiming for isn't what it used to be. It was never perfect, but arguably the political system is broken, especially at the national level. When somebody is engages in some kind of bipartisan legislation, it comes as a shock to people and a surprise. Mm-hmm. And so you have these young, ambitious, smart women like Dulce Vasquez, our fellow, who just mm-hmm. did a podcast with us about her run for office, running against an entrenched incumbent. Yeah and they're aiming to to join a political system that is arguably ineffective. Mm-hmm. Couldn't they do something else with their talent? Couldn't they start a business or start a nonprofit or mm-hmm. are there better ways to make change for women or is office
2: the is in other words why are you recommending right. why are you asking women to run for office well, rather than spend n- their time doing something? Number else? 1, women win their races at the same rate as men. The reason there are only 25% women in places like Congress and state assemblies around the country is because we don't run at the same rate as men. And so I think it's really important, as I mentioned earlier, if you're talking about women's empowerment and you're talking about gender equity, you have to get in positions of power. And that is not just in the military and it is not just in the boardrooms and in corporations. It is also in government and our government. I love it. I defended it. I defended our country and is, is a democracy. And we get there through democratic means. And in order to, to, to reach that parity, you have to run. And so that's why I want to encourage women to run. It, is it hard? Is it hard in this political environment? Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. My mother once told me that you would have to get your head examined to want to be in this political environment. She also kind of said that about being a Marine Corps fighter pilot, but um, it's really important to get good quality people that want to go into public service, that look at running for office as a service to the country and a sacrifice because it is, and that are willing and have the courage to do hard things. I always tell people, you know, it took courage to strap on a $70 million jet to your back and to land on an aircraft carrier at night and to do combat missions. It took more courage to get into the political environment and put your name out there, your reputation out there. Before I jumped into the political arena in Kentucky, I was very well respected in my own home state. I had gotten inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame in Kentucky and all kinds of, and and it would be very easy to just go back home and just enjoy life. But it was at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 when I saw that I felt like my country needed better leaders. And I could go back. I could retire from the military and go back home and, and live a nice sort of cushy life with no criticism and, oh, you've served your country. Thank you for your service. But I felt like I needed to do more. And I needed to, to jump into the political environment because we needed better leaders. And I knew that that was going to immediately make me be criticized. And then to, to then go on and run for the House and then go on to run against Mitch McConnell when you know the other side has $100 million to smear your name in your own home state um, is tough. But you know what? Our country was built on people that had courage. And I am convinced that our country will not survive if we do not have people with courage to be able to jump into the political arena. And that's why I did it. I did it because I wanted to win, obviously, but I also wanted to encourage others not to give up and to do what, what it is you did, you know, if that makes sense.
0: Makes sense to me. Um, all right, last question from me, and then I'm going to turn it over to, to the audience because I'm sure they have questions. And if they don't, I have more. <laughs> Um, and that is kind of sticking to this idea of elections, right? I'm going to say, I'm going to say a sentence and I want you to fill in the blank. Okay. Okay. Running for office is all about blank. And I hope you choose the right answer.
2: Determination.
0: Ooh, good answer. Not the one I was looking for though. The one I was looking for was fundraising.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, one, one
0: begets the other. One begets the other. That's true. That's true. So, um, there's another story in your book where you talk about okay I've decided I'm going to run for office and I'm driving I think it was from DC back to Kentucky and the the first thing that you'd figured out is I got to make this video uh to introduce myself to to voters and the video costs $30,000 how am I going to b- raise $30,000 on a essentially a public servant you know salary right. I'm going to call my friends and family you called your friends and family it was very tough for you to do that but you raised the money the video was good it got you traction donations came in. Now imagine that somebody is considering running for office, but they are first-generation American. Most of their friends and family live overseas. Mm -hmm. And over 30% of Americans now are, you know, first-generation or immigrants, a big chunk of people. Mm -hmm. Or they are a low-income person. Right. Do we live in a time now where somebody who is middle-income even, or low-income, however we define those terms, or an immigrant that lacks a kind of a family structure, big set of friends, can they even consider running for office? And how inequitable does that make this idea of running for office?
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that there's inequity there. There is no doubt that it is much harder for somebody who does not have a political last name or somebody who is not independently wealthy to run. It is extremely difficult. Not impossible, but extremely difficult. The advantages are that you are somebody voters, most voters can relate to. That's the advantage. If you can get your name out there, which is where the money piece comes in. The disadvantage obviously is that you don't have the money or maybe the network to be able to, to start that. That's where organizations like mine, um, Honor Bound, which is is specifically for those who have served the country to, to then jump into politics. But there are other organizations out there um, that will help you Uh, get started. And what I tell people um, specifically when they're talking about fundraising is you're not fundraising for yourself. You're not taking that, that, you know, $2,800 max check that you can get from at the federal level and pocketing it in your pocket. You're, you have a shared vision for the country. You're doing the hard work of running. I always tell people, you want to go run, go run, you know? I'm doing it because it's hard and there's not a lot of people that want to do it. So my pitch was always, we have the same values. Support me because I'm doing the work, right? It's almost like a patriotism thing. You love the country. I love the country. I'm doing what I can do. What are you doing? You know, and then maybe that's the Marine in me. But it, you, you sort of make people think that way. And so that's what I would tell folks who who can't fund their own campaign or who don't have networks: is we got to, you know, there there are organizations out there to get you to talk to people who can help you, who can uh, help you with those funds, and then remind them, hey, this is about the country, this isn't about me, and I'm doing the I'm doing the sacrifice because it really is a sacrifice to run, but so important that we have good people. And there's a lot of I, I just. Met with some some folks last night who here in L.A. who who helped with my campaign and it, it was amazing because these are patriotic Americans who love this country, and so you just need to tap into that. You know we're all doing our part. I always tell say, hey, some people can knock on doors, some people can write op eds, some people can uh, can run for office, some people can write a check. Everybody should be doing something.
0: Okay, with that uh inspiring end uh to the to the my q and a i'm going to open it up to all of you to ask questions and if you don't mind Sorry. if you feel comfortable just say your name and maybe the organization or institution you're here sure. You're with sure
2: um my name's holly milburn smith and i'm actually i was born and raised in georgetown kentucky awesome. and now i work in los angeles i'm i do gender equity work in the mayor's office okay. and i am endlessly dissatisfied and more often than not annoyed by the way Places like Kentucky are talked about with regard to electoral politics as these like unwinnable places lacking all nuance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, my hunch is that you agree because you went you know head to head with the most powerful member of the Senate because you probably thought it was winnable. And I agree with you. I think it is winnable for progressives. Um, But my question for you is: is what do we get wrong in popular narrative about a place like Kentucky that people kind of dismiss as not winnable for progressives? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that we can't discount any area. And so when we say something is unwinnable and we don't invest and we don't care about candidates and we don't care about messaging, we lose those areas for another generation. And that that's my concern. I always tell people, you know, when I ran against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, I wasn't running against just, you know, one year of attack ads. Against me, I was running against two decades of propaganda and labeling. You know, one political party as something evil, and you can't always overcome that in in one election cycle. We have to keep trying. We have to keep good people running uh, and can try to make these areas as competitive as possible. We cannot cede anything. That's what I would tell folks. And, you know, Kentucky is a very tough place. It's very proud. You, you know this. Um, but I think that people are willing to listen to, um, you know, to the reality. And I, I'd go to places like eastern Kentucky and and would say things like, hey, this guy's been around 30 years. He's doing great. How are you doing? You know? And um, it's tough, though. It, it's really tough. Yeah.
0: Other questions?
3: Hi, Ahsan. Thanks again for the invite. Always a great conversation. So appreciate it. And thank you so much, Amy, for flying in here. Um, my name's Andy. I'm using he, him pronouns today. And I work for a consulting group called Side Porch. And part of what we do is look at the incentives and accountabilities for organizations and systems that are going through a transformational change. And so that's where my question is heading. I wanted to touch on three quick points, though, and kind of lead up to that. One is that Audre Lord quote, that is often misused of like the master's house will never be destroyed with the master's tools. I think that the way that you laid it out of the importance of being within the system for change, there's some really great articles about how that quote is taken out of context and what Audre Lord actually meant in that quote. So I appreciate your thoughts there. I also feel like there is this world in which um, the masters, those in power, those that are wealthy, those that are white, those that are male are tightening their grip on those tools because they fear and they know that change is coming Mm -hmm. and that oftentimes there's this desire or movement to putting the effort on like those that are oppressed need to work hard or harder to get to those tools. When in reality, it's really those that have the tight hold need to loosen it or share, which then brings into, I really appreciate that there's intersectionality was brought up on the screen before and the four eyes of oppression of institutional, ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized, and thinking about how all those are intersected along the way. So that leads me to my question, which is, what is the incentives and accountability that you see at the political level that may enable for more of this change of gender equity to occur in the political system?
2: Well, there's a lot there. Uh, I think the incentive to change is there. I mean, people, people do want change. I think what's, what's hard right now is that, you know, there does seem to be so much resistance. And I think as a, as a woman, especially what we've seen, look, let's just be frank in the last year with a lot of women's, what I consider women's rights being um, curtailed there, there's, it's easy to, to sort of say, okay, we've stalled. And maybe maybe kind of throw up our arms and, and give up, but um, we just can't do that. And and we have to keep working for gender equity in uh, places like Congress. Twenty five percent, it ain't good enough. It's not good enough. And and so I I just firmly believe that really lasting change is not going to happen until you get you know that equity in in leadership in places like Congress, in the boardrooms, at the, at the head of major institutions like our military and that, that sort of thing. I'm also somebody that, that believes that, you know, you should be the change that you want to see. When I ran for office, I, I, the, particularly the first time, I, people would say, well, how are you going to be as a candidate? And I'm all like, like I'm going to be the candidate I always wanted to vote for. Somebody who tells you the truth, who doesn't lie to you, you know, who isn't going to tell you that you know uh, cutting taxes is going to uh, just because that's what you want to hear is going to save all? Um, it isn't going to bash everybody in government all the time? I wanted to be that that candidate, and I think you know we if we just have people that that work hard to do the things that they want to see changed, uh, it will happen. But I also want to make this point because you you brought it up with folks in power resisting and sort of grabbing onto it even more. That's going to happen. When you look at progress throughout history, it's never been a straight line. It's always been this sort of zigzag up and down, two steps forward, three steps back, whatever. You know, we're in that time right now where I feel like this is sort of the last bastion of, of people trying to, you know, keep that power. They're sort of just really trying to do that. And that's what we're seeing. So we, we can't stop. We're still going in the right direction.
1: Mm-hmm. Amy, yes, sir. what did you learn in the Marines that prepared you for the first race, Congress? Mm-hmm. That what did you learn in the race for Congress that prepared, prepared you for the Senate race?
2: Being a Marine Corps officer, you're not just flying a plane. You're a leader. And being a Marine Corps officer is all about people. It's about leading people. It's about being straight with them. It's about being confident, having a vision. And being able to communicate that vision toward a mission, running for Congress, almost the exact same thing. Being able to stand up in front of people, being confident who you are, what you stand for, providing them a vision and giving them a path to where that vision to to achieve that vision. And it's about people. You know, being a Marine Corps officer, you it, not everybody's the same. All Marines are different. They have different um, uh, backgrounds. They have different educational uh, and different talents. They have different personal things going on in their personal lives. And that's true with voters. And so, you know, running for office, you got to listen to people. It's that balance. I call it humbition. It's a balance between humility, knowing you don't know everything, listening to people. because don't, I don't have an answer for I don't have every policy answer for everything out there. You got to listen to people and ambition. Ambition meaning I want this job. I'm qualified for this job. I know I can do a good job. That balance, ambition, that's what I learned in the Marine Corps. That's to be successful in the Marine Corps, you have to have that. You have to have that humility. It's not the Jack Nicholas's of the world, you know, in that in that movie that are the that are the are are the, ge- the generals and are, are successful. It's the Charlie Boldens of the world, you know, who became an astronaut and then head of NASA who was a Marine Corps fighter pilot. It's the John Glens of the world, that the rise within the Marine Corps, that humility and ambition. And then to your second question, what I learned from the first race to the second, um, I think a lot of what I learned was, was more on the political nature. Everything that you say is being taped. So be careful of what you say. Be careful of the phrases that you use. You know, when you're not a, somebody in the public eye and you're not being taped and everything that you, you know, you make jokes and you, you know, you, you say things a certain way. When you're in the public eye, and this is maybe why a lot of you who haven't run, you're probably thinking to yourself, why do, why do politicians never say anything? They kind of like dance around everything and never say anything never answer the question. Now I know why things can be taken out of context. There were jokes that I made in front of groups where I would answer questions that literally the other side would splice out a phrase, put it on an attack ad that had absolutely nothing to do with what I was actually talking about. And so these are things that you learn over time. Um, And I also learned that people can be enormously generous. And in terms of fundraising, I was very worried that I about it the first race. I wasn't worried about it at all in the second race because I knew I could do it. Like anything, once you've done it, whether it's landing an, an F-18 on the back of an aircraft carrier at night in bad weather, whether it's running three miles, whether it's doing an obstacle course, whether it's speaking in front of a group, once you've done it once, man, you know you can do that shit stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know you can do it. And so that second time, I had just enormous amount of confidence on that front. Um, by the time I went into the, the debate with Mitch McConnell, which was on TV and everything, I, man, I was ready. I mean, in, in all the scale of things that I had done in my life, uh, that was like not even in the top 10 in terms of hard things to do by that point. Just keep challenging yourself. Hardest thing I ever done was have three kids. <laughs> They don't listen like Marines. So I've got one question
0: here, and then I've got one over there.
1: Hi, my name is Alex Cameron, uh, and my question is this. Uh, You understand Kentucky pretty well, and you understand uh, Senate campaigns pretty well. So I'm wondering what advice you give to your old primary opponent, Charles Booker, and does he, in your opinion, have a shot or not?
2: Um, What advice would I give to Charles Booker? I I think... uh, he, he obviously is, is in the middle of his campaign. So, I mean, he is, he's fundraising just like, like I did. And he's going out and talking to voters just like I did. It's a very tough environment in Kentucky. Um, he's running against a different opponent than I ran against. He's running against a man who's even more popular in Kentucky than my opponent was. Uh, so it will be difficult. Um, but look, I, I agree with him on, hey, we need change. And um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that message continues uh, in, in my state. Hi,
0: I'm Manmeet Mehta, I work with Ashoka, that's a global nonprofit that looks at systems changing innovations. Bear with me, my question is not particularly sharp, but I'm fascinated by your experience in running for office across Kentucky, and we've seen sort of the divisiveness, especially over the last five to seven years that has emerged. Um, and the erosion of trust. And so I guess my question is trying to get at that divisiveness is connected to the corrosive nature of politics that we see coming out of Washington, yeah. D.C., and then it feeds it. And so it's sort of a mutually reinforcing circle. What gives you hope that we can address that? And a couple of things in your experience that say this is what we need to rebuild trust in each other mm-hmm. and in our, in our democratic institutions in this country.
2: That is a that's a fantastic question. The corrosive nature is definitely there. It's a combination of the the money in politics, post-citizens United world. It's a combination of gerrymandering, of the media and social media, and and media being more uh, of a entertainment system as opposed to uh, a public good. So I think it has gotten worse, and is very difficult to break through that. I can tell you firsthand from running in Kentucky. Is extremely difficult. And you are absolutely right to say that people do not trust the system. And they have good reason not to trust the system. When you talk to the average voter in Kentucky, they're just like, you know, I don't like either party. I don't like, everything's bought. Everything's, you know, this money game. And, you know, they're right. They're right. Um, But what gives me hope is that, one, we have Americans like yourself who are not going to quit, who are going to continue to work for a better system, who are going to continue to work to um, get rid of gerrymandering, going to continue to work to rein in money in politics. We're not there. We're not even close. But we got to have people and, and we need to keep voting people in that want to tackle those issues. The other thing that gives me hope is younger generation. You know, we have a uh, group of students this morning that walked out in Virginia because they're walking out. Um, they want their voices heard on a particular issue that they disagree with the governor on. Good on them. You know, they're not just caving. They, they care. And it's not so much that particular issue, although that's an important one. It's the idea that they felt like they want to engage in their democracy as 15 year olds. Awesome. That's the America. Of the future, the other thing that gives me hope is um, things like structural changes, like in in the way they we do elections in Alaska, the ranked choice voting. You know, some of these things are you may think is is very small, and it's Alaska. They have seven hundred thousand people. There's more people in Kentucky's sixth congressional district than there is in Alaska. So how does this matter? But hey, if it can start somewhere and we can have reform somewhere and it can be a success story, we can make it grow. There's all kinds of ways to reform, and I think people are still very much focused on that. So that's what gives me hope.
3: Hi, Amy. Nice to meet you. My name is Kiana. I'm a student here at ASU. I'm currently a mass communication and media major, but I do have a great interest in politics, I volunteer for a youth in government program. I worked at a political campaign for assembly member Reg- Reggie Jones as well. Uh, and so my question as a communications major and someone that loves politics and has worked with uh, younger generations as well, what would be the message that you would send out to Gen Zs and millennials to be able to not just show up at the polls,
2: but to actually be interested in politics? My message is simple. This is your country. It's your country you make it what you want it to be. I ran for office because I wanted to lead, because I know in my heart what I believe true American values really are of equality, of opportunity. The things that I fought for, where my friends who, when I went to Afghanistan and I went to Iraq, didn't come home, but I'm home. Uh, so I would say to the younger generation, yeah, you live in an amazing country. I've been all around the world. This is an amazing country. We have a lot of faults. We have a lot of things to work on. We are still an amazing country, but it will only remain that way. It can only get better if they engage. They own it. That's what I would tell them. Hi, I'm Tasneem Noor. I'm a spiritual coach and I do my best to be courageous. So your message of be courageous and courage is what we need is really resonating with me. And I'm wondering what, how do you decide when to be courageous and how to activate that courage? That's a fantastic question. Courage is not something you're born with. I didn't, I didn't just, you know, Amy McGrath always been courageous. No, I did not like public speaking when I was, you know, in my early 20s, I was I was happier flying 500 feet off the ground at 450 miles an hour than I was getting in front of a group like this in public speaking. So, how do you get to the point where you have the courage? And courage, by the way, is not, is not the absence of fear; it's being able to push through the fear. I'm convinced that you can't do anything if you don't have the courage. And my Angelou said, "Of all the traits." that are the most important. They all matter, but courage is the most important because all the other ones you can't exercise unless you have courage. So how do you get there? For me, I look back and it wasn't something that just happened. It's doing the little things over and over and continually challenging yourself, doing the things you think you cannot do. And each time you do something that you previously thought you could not do, you take that, you put it in your backpack, and you go to the next thing. It, has anyone I, I, has seen The Mandalorian? It's like a Disney Plus, okay? My kids are Zilly. watching this thing, okay? Right. And and I, I try to equate it to that because The Mandalorian is the main character. And he doesn't have, initially, he doesn't have any armor. And he goes and he performs a mission. And he doesn't, and he's successful. And sometimes he's not not successful. But sometimes he's successful and he gets a piece of, of um like a metal that he brings back to the person who then uh, it, it smelts it, makes it into part of his armor. And each time he goes out and he be, so so the next time he goes out, he has more armor. Maybe it's over his one part of his arm. And then the next year he's, he gets his other arm, you know, covered. So that by the time, you know, that he's a real uh, warrior, he's got the whole body covered. And I kind of look at that as, as, you know, you want to fly a fighter jet, you don't just get there overnight. You do these things, you know, you build yourself up to that. You want to run against the Senate majority leader and have the courage to put yourself out there, you you build up to that. And you do it by doing the things you think you cannot do, whatever that is, putting it in your backpack and going to the next one.
0: I think that's a great place to end our conversation today, Amy. So let's give Amy a round of applause. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Amy. Thanks for listening. As always, remember to subscribe. You can rate us on any of the podcast rating apps. Check out the work of The Difference Engine at thedifferenceengine.asu.edu. And Unfair Nation is also a newsletter. We have thousands of subscribers now. We've been doing really well in terms of subscriptions. You can subscribe for free at unfairnation.com. Just click on the newsletter link and it'll take you to the substack where you can sign up. Thanks again for listening.